Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, Dr. Susie Ferrarello, a colleague, collaborator, and friend, will be our guest host. Dr. Ferrarello is an assistant professor at California State University, East Bay. She got her BA from La Sapienza University in Rome her MA in International Human Rights at Alma Mater University in Bologna, and her PhD at the Sorbonne in Philosophy. She is currently hosting a podcast herself titled The Meaning of Life, Where Philosophy Gets Personal. She's published several books, the most recent of which are titled Husserl's Ethics and Practical Intentionality, published in 2015, The Phenomenology of Sex, Love, and Intimacy, published in 2018, Human Emotions and the Origin of Bioethics, published in 2021, and The Ethics of Love, published in 2022. She's a frequent contributor to Psychology Today and works as a philosophical counselor in Los Angeles, California. You can find her at www.practicalintentionality.com. Welcome to the show. Hello, Nicole. It's my great pleasure to be here today. Today, we want to set the tone for the subsequent episodes for this season by discussing why you, Dr. Zapian, has an interest to bring psychoanalysis and technology together. It's great to be here with you on the show today. And yeah, I have some questions I would like to ask you if it's okay with you. Wonderful. So my initial curiosity is, how did you come up with this podcast? I mean, uh, bringing together psychoanalysis and technology is not so intuitive, actually. They seem to belong to two separate worlds. So how did you come up with this idea and how did you create this format? Mm, That's a great question. I think the very point you bring up, that they're from different worlds, is precisely why I think they need to be in conversation with each other. And I'll say a little bit about that. Recently, you asked me to be a guest on your podcast, The Meaning of Life, Where Philosophy Gets Personal. And I agreed, of course, and it was a very stimulating discussion. What was most fascinating was how casual and deep at the same time, how relatable a podcast can be. So that was through your and my conversations. That was, in some ways, why I selected podcasting as maybe the the beginning way to get these two disparate fields in dialogue with one another. But really, both of these areas, technology and psychoanalysis, concern all of us. We're all tech consumers at this point. Even people who characterize themselves as Luddites have some technology that surrounds them or are impacted by technology. And we all have an unconscious. So basically, the idea of bringing psychoanalytic ideas together with technology has been developing as I notice the ways that I think I'm influenced and also cannot understand all of the unconscious ways I'm influenced by technology, which I believe goes at a different pace than maybe 
typical kinds of interactions that don't involve technology. What I mean by that is the rate at which we are served up images or the way search functionality works or the way in which we interact with technology in general, it's so immediate. And I feel like that gap when it's closed, the gap between, let's say, clicking on a Google search and receiving back what we get or looking at porn and receiving the next image or looking at Netflix and then click to the next episode, that gap is closing. And for me, that's the gap that is so precious in psychoanalysis where we do a lot of our work and where we start to engage things like not knowing, negative capability, or we start to engage what kinds of associations and feelings and so on come up. And those things operate at a time signature that's very different than machine time. So in some ways, I'm kind of longing for both a simpler time where there's more boredom and more freedom and we're not connected so much and there's not so much FOMO, as many people talk about, so that I can really understand what are my impulses, what are my feelings, where is my body, what am I wanting, what am I not wanting, at least at the conscious level. And maybe even I can interact with some of the unconscious dynamics as well if there's a little bit of space. What I think is interesting about these two areas being in dialogue, this is not only my personal desire to have more freedom, although it is definitely personal. Most of my patients, I'm working in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so much of our industry is in tech. And so most of my patients come in, and many of them work in the tech industry. And what they're finding is that they're not happy with the pace either. And they're questioning some of the ethics of what they're delivering. And they're wondering about does an algorithm produce happiness? And what do I do if, I, if I'm not happy? And they find that psychoanalysis is really helpful. So I'm sort of hoping to bring maybe a little bit more consciousness or capacity to deal with the unconscious to the tech executive. But I'm also looking to actually influence the tech industry, which is maybe a silly idea. They are giants, I am small, but I'm actually really interested in getting some support for what I'm going to call healthy tech or slow tech, so that we can really demonstrate that lots of people are feeling bombarded by tech, and many of us would like to engage the unconscious dynamics and think about how they affect us, and perhaps we need to design with that in mind. That's a very good point. I mean, I was reading uh, recently an article uh, that showed how many of uh, the tech people, uh, the, the geniuses uh, who invented uh, you know, many of the most popular apps today, uh, do not let their children <laughs> use <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right, the technologies that they created. So I think that the expression you came up with, I mean, healthy technology, slow-paced technology, would meet the interests not only of us, people who use technology, but also of those who, like Prometheus, you know, <laughs> stole the fire and now what do we do with it? Exactly. It's exactly the same. <laughs> Yeah. So who do you imagine is the audience? Do you think it's going to be a young audience or people in tech or psychoanalysis? Who, who do you foresee? I'm planning to launch to have several episodes, and I really see two possibilities. The first is, and the first is what I'm trying to address first, that is the audience of psychoanalysis itself. So I want psychoanalysts and people in related professions, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and so on, to take up the issue of 
building a bridge to be the first group to begin to talk about our theories and why it is that psychoanalysis might have something to say to technology and begin to build that bridge. So much of our profession is really kind of private and necessarily so. Of course, we don't talk willy-nilly out in the public about our cases. And our theories are a little, even our theoretical articles are a little bit elitist, use a vocabulary that's difficult to relate to. When someone asks, what do you do as a psychoanalyst? How long does it take? And how much does it cost? And do you really lay on a couch? And you know, what is the unconscious like? We usually give these kind of cryptic Zen koan-like responses that are designed to get the person to reflect on it themselves, which can be kind of frustrating and a little distancing, I think. So my hope is to make some of the basic contemporary thinking of psychoanalysis more accessible to the public, more accessible to people thinking more flexibly about how it might be applied to today's contemporary experiences that are really often technology-mediated. So there's that audience. And I think that's the perhaps the easiest audience, because I'm part of the audience and I can choose particular theories and we can apply them to consumer technology and we can have discussions and that's all fine and well. But it doesn't really take up the other side of the equation, which is the tech executives and the the consumer technology user, which may find some of the analytic concepts interesting, but also has something really important to offer this dialogue. Many people in the tech field, in my estimation, think very analytically. And and by analytically, I don't mean psychoanalytically, I mean logically. And they also think in terms of algorithms. And in part, we've been taught by being steeped in technology so much, and those who work in technology tend to, perhaps without question, recognize that their thinking patterns are really about variables and algorithms and relational databases, like those things have influenced the way they think about things as different as happiness or love or sex. And so they tend to approach questions like how to make good tech, which I would consider a philosophical question, or what is happiness or what will be good for teenagers or what is ethical. They tend to approach that with an algorithmic thought in mind with what are the variables and how can we control and predict. And I think what that leaves out is the poetry of everything, the philosophical questions that really need to be addressed at the beginning, the techno-ethical questions, but the beauty, the somatics, the aesthetics, it leaves out all of that you know, in so many ways and leaves us in a position where we cannot have a, a reasonable dialogue. So I'm hoping to build some vocabulary with that audience as well, some appreciation for the body, for aesthetics, for philosophy. Maybe I should have philosophers on the show as well. But hoping to build something in there that will allow the tech designers to slow down enough to appreciate things like freedom or the unconscious, or privacy in different ways, not privacy as we understand it as technologists, which means security and can anyone see my browser, but privacy, the interior self, the uniqueness of the self, and the fact that one can really never know another person completely. We want them to protect those those things and maybe even appreciate them in the apps that they design or in the ways they think about design. So I think I have two different audiences, and I'm looking to build a bridge between them, and I'm looking to build a shared vocabulary. This is not going to be easy. During the four years that I was at the California Institute of Integral Studies, I oversaw a series of really interesting clinical degree programs, everything from you know psychology degree programs to somatics to experiential arts degrees, and these are all clinical training programs. 
And one of my agenda items was to try to bring our university in conversation with all of the tech companies that were in the surround. So Twitter was just down the street, Dolby, Airbnb, you know, these these kinds of guys were on our block, essentially. And so I wanted to bring them in contact with us and have dialogues with them. And so I organized with a company called Hack Mental Health, which is a funny name, actually, you know, as if you can hack your mental health. But okay, already within the name is the idea that there's an algorithm and that there's a shortcut. You can hack it. You can get it into an app. You can find the secret and just sort of unleash them and be more powerful or be more competitive than others, which is what so many young people face in, in so many areas. So Hack Mental Health and I partnered to bring together 150 folks in the tech arena. So these are product developers, app designers, engineers, back-end engineers, and 150 mental health professionals. So these are psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, psychotherapists, and related folks. And we were going to spend the weekend together designing creative projects. What was fascinating about that dialogue was that we didn't speak the same language. And maybe I could have anticipated that at the beginning, but it was so strong that the tech developers and the tech teams could not imagine a project that was not an app. Like that was their main contribution. They could not use any of their thinking about technology to get outside of the idea of developing an app. And the psychologists, what the, the kinds of things that they were saying, so basically the tech teams would start designing, going about their product development process with these psychologists on their teams. And the psychologists or mental health professionals were basically raising concerns. Well, if you develop that your autistic user is going to have these problems. And if you develop that, then women might have these problems based on what we know from our research and our practice. And they would sort of take those tidbits and then use the algorithms and design anyway. So some of the projects that came out of there were very interesting. The mental health professionals were raising questions like, but text recognition software isn't good enough. And these kinds of concerns are never going to be addressable because each person is singular and unique and needs to be addressed as such. So the conversations kind of fell down. And what I realized from that with great frustration was the tech people want to develop things that don't harm people. They don't want to be by day designing something that they know is harmful for their teenagers and then saying, no, I don't want to give you this phone until you're 15 because I know it's harming you. That puts them in a real ethical, moral dilemma. And then they end up on my couch worrying about what they've done. But they also don't know how to get outside of algorithmic thinking we're having trouble building that bridge, too, and being more involved in what young people are doing. And I, I'm starting to create this split of young and old, mostly because the average age of a psychoanalyst is 60. So we've got, wow. you know, a, a real difficulty here. Psychoanalysis as a field is relatively old. Many of the people who are going to need psychoanalysis in the future are relatively young. And most of those people have never known a world that is not digital and doesn't have smartphones. So we have, you know, some problems here. Thank you, Nicole. It, it seems that despite the wide variety of your experience, because, I mean, you work both in tech and in psychology, psychoanalysis. I mean, you yourself, with your experiences, seem to bridge this world, these two worlds. It seems that there's still a polarization standing, but you don't seem to 
want this polarization going. You seem to want to overcome the polarization. I don't know what are the difficulties you perceive in creating a bridge. What are the barriers that you see on all sides? And how can you create collaboration given you know, your experience, given your knowledge of the two worlds? You seem to know enough uh, of both parties uh, to create maybe a bridge. What do you think? Yeah. I think this goes back to my early experiences. So before I went into the mental health field, I was a consultant. And being a consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area necessitates that you generally, and maybe this is true of consultants everywhere now, maybe we're all consultants to the tech industry. But at that time, the focus of this consulting agency was on serving technology companies in the early 90s. And what what that entailed was various startups and some of what now are the big tech firms were very small then. And they were wrestling with questions like, uh, you know, Google was asking questions like, how do we monetize Google? And they, they were really asking that question. They really had no idea. They said, we've built this search engine, now what do we do? And that was before ads and so on. Amazon was asking questions like, will people feel confident enough to put their credit card information into this tool? Or will they be too worried that someone will steal their data? Because there was a lot of consumer hesitancy at that time to share your credit card information with a website. You don't know who these people are. So most of my research in that time you know, for these, these companies was to help them figure out the usability of their products, so how people click through them and whether or not they complain about being able to achieve the objectives they want, but also how they market them, monetize them, price them, position them, and so on, which was all very interesting. At that time, any person worth their salt now in tech would laugh, but we would actually create tools to count each person's click path and model it because we didn't have the kinds of speeds and processing speeds and and so on that that people now have. We didn't have the databases and, and all of the programming languages. It was quite rickety, actually, and it was laborious, but we would hand count people's click paths and be able to determine, oh, if I use these colors or this tagline or I showcase this particular product, people are more likely to buy. And what I quickly realized was, oh, wow, the power of technology with passive income and exponential growth and all of that, which makes so many people wealthy, is also the power to quickly, in machine time, manipulate large groups of people. Most tech executives say, well, yeah, I like my, you know, I like my recommendations in Amazon and I like all the ease and convenience. I do too, actually. I like all of those convenient things and I don't mind them. But what's not showing is if everything is shoveled up to me in a way that is designed very skillfully to push me to buy or click in a very specific way, I may not have any free choice anymore. I may not have any freedom. <laughs> oh, yo, yo. Mm-hmm. And I, I got very frightened by this. And I decided, that, you know, in, the, in those moments, I decided I don't want to be part of an industry that's very lucrative, that's very interesting, that will put me in this kind of moral questioning So I went into mental health. I started to become more interested in a previous, you know, I studied psychology early on, more interested in what can we do that maintains our freedom? So that was a very early question for me. And it's in fact the impetus. Maybe we do need to bridge this particular gap because technology is not going away. Young people are saying it's here to stay. It's the wave of the future. And so if we're not going backwards and we're going forwards and technology has the objective of 
currently the objective of more and faster and perhaps more profitability in most apps and designs. Some of it is, you know, truly nonprofit and and helpful, perhaps Google Maps, you know, what have you. But it's also loops back into the Google brand, which is very much a powerhouse and is very invested in capitalism. What do we have to build by way of techno-ethics or by way of conversations that can help us deal with this power? and protect our minds. And I don't know, techno-ethics so far, we've had lots of great ethicists and lots of people speaking out about these issues. They, as far as I'm concerned, are dealing with the conscious side of things, and they're dealing with philosophical questions. And I, you know how, how much I adore your field and how important I think it is. It asks very good questions. But I'm also watching the ethicists get marched to the door. You know, Timnit Gebru was a really crucial moment. She raised questions about about racism that is embedded in most of these tech apps. And that's been, that alarm has been sounded numerous times. And most of the time what happens is they get silenced and walk to the door and it's, it's profound. So I'm recognizing that maybe we need to build a groundswell through psychology. And my particular area of interest is psychoanalysis, because I think that those powerful groups could theoretically influence things more than ethicists because everyone eventually ends up on our couch, even the ones who are creating these things, or many of them do. And they know that they need to build mental health into their products and services, which is why they're all having these conversations in their HR department. They're all generating programs and projects to help the mental health of their employees, to counteract some of the damage that they know they're doing, but they're just not doing it in a way that I think is going to really help. They're doing tiny apps and you know, 10-day seminars or what have you, but that's not going to be enough. No. How do you imagine this happening? I mean, how, what actions can psychoanalysis take then? Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to build some audience and some discussions. I want someone else who has perhaps more power than I have or more influence than I have to take those ideas up and deliver them into various facets of society, but I also want to provide some consulting services to a few companies and publish about those results. Because I think that if we if we address the design of technology, if we if we provide psychoanalytic consulting to the groups themselves who are designing the tech and encourage them to think more freely, to dissent more when they perhaps are feeling any number of anxieties about dissent, to encourage them to really, you know, there's lots of ideas in psychoanalysis about the capacity to think the unthinkable or the capacity to pay attention to unconscious wishes and fears. If we can help people make those and the dynamics of groups more transparent, they might be able to bring that into the product development process. My understanding of product development is that, you know, there's a hierarchy and the VP of engineering, the VP of product development, you know, have their agenda items and everybody wants to please them, of course. And so, so when there is a voice of dissent or a concern, sometimes that voice doesn't come up in the group dynamic because of politics or unpopularity or not feeling like people feel too small or, or not powerful enough. I think we have to raise the level of capacity inside of these product development companies because, or product development arms of big tech or even small tech, because I think in the end, they come to influence us. Yeah. So, you know, to what extent has Facebook influenced all of our thinking? I don't know. Like, what I see in my newsfeed, is it just because am I actually able to balance what I read and take in with a critical eye? I'm not sure I can anymore. So I'm, I'm left with these products and services influence us, and if we don't influence them at the root, we're going to be at their mercy. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> that's really well said. Look, and how do you think, uh, how do we imagine psychoanalysts need to adapt to deal with uh, ubiquitous technology use? In what ways uh, do you imagine that psychoanalysis might need to retain some of the original frame? Mm, that's a great question. I think we're wrestling with that very idea. COVID was a really interesting time period. Well, was. It's not even over. But the beginnings of COVID, where before we had vaccines and we were all pushed into considering the ethical dilemma, do I stick to my original frame, which includes in-person meetings multiple times a week on the couch, or can I adapt and start offering teleanalysis, which is, you know, either using a, a you know, Zoom or, or go-to meeting or what have you, or a telephone contact. And this is something that people have been doing when patients are on holiday or the analyst is on holiday, or some people have been very innovative and have offered that and claim that it's just the same or equally good or certainly is an analytic process. Many others are very suspicious and say, no, that's not at all the same because you're not two bodies in a room you can't control what the other person is doing on the other side, you know, the, the analysand. It warps time and space because you don't have to travel to and from the office, and so there's no gap or thinking time in between and so on. So there's all these issues associated with the conversation right now among psychoanalysts about whether or not teleanalysis is useful, equivalent, good. Meanwhile, because everyone had to try it during COVID in order to ethically serve our, our patients, we didn't want to just drop them and say, okay, sorry, I, I can't do this. We had to grow as a field to realize, okay, it works. What are we noticing? And I think we're publishing a lot on that very topic with a lot of dissent and discussion and really good thinking is coming out of it. The other thing, though, I think we haven't really theorized, and which I would like us to do, which is to get outside of our consulting rooms and start to theorize, what is this group of young people going to be like and need from us? You know, I think psychoanalysis is wonderful. It provides all kinds of support and development that is really deep and rich and personal. What are they going to need from us as they continue to wrestle with technology as an object? You know, they have object relations with their tech. The way people have attachments to their phones or to their profiles or to their video games, the ways in which they interact without smell or the body or what have you in, in a greater proportion of the time. You know, young people are online interacting with Discord and Snapchat and whatever else they're doing. There's some interesting object relations going on there. There's some interesting relational phenomena happening there. We need to theorize that because we're not ready for the young people. With our current theories, we are not ready for them as far as I can see. And that doesn't mean that our old theories or our current theories don't apply to them. They do very much, I would say. But we also need to push our theories a little bit further. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I mean, uh, on the other side... As a philosopher, I'm thinking of this expression, I think it comes from Dewey, that says that it's part of our mental hygiene to change the patterns of our thoughts as much as we change our clothes and we clean ourselves every morning and so on. And what scares me as a philosopher is that, you know, applications use patterns especially built in this ability of creating patterns. So this personal hygiene for mental health comes to lack a little. Do you think that psychoanalysis, that psychoanalytic thinking can help breaking 
somehow the rigidity of patterns can help, uh, as you were saying before, uh, to you know to open uh, some deeper doors uh, to help uh, designers and tech people to create something that is more fluid. I don't know. The general question is, how do you think a psychoanalytic thinking can help a technology on the other side? Yeah. I think that's a that's a great question because I think psychoanalysis is perfectly positioned. Uh, you know, every day, every day psychoanalysts meet with our patients. They present to us things that are patterned and that sometimes diverge and show the cracks in the pattern and allow us to see what the unconscious what the unconscious dynamics are inside of those patterns and we make those our job is to speak those or use those or help our patients to find ways in which they can free themselves a little bit from the automaticity of those patterns thank you that's great yeah that's already a direction <laughs> that uh... What so does philosophy say about this problem? Maybe <laughs> philosophy has some answers. I'm not sure. No idea. I mean, I yeah, I looked into machine learning technology basically, and I yeah, I recently read an article on um, especially Wobot. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's it's an app that is based mostly on behavioral psychology. And a group of people did an experiment and started using this app. And the app is based on machine learning technology. So they learn time by time while users give them information. So it's something that it expands, it grows. <laughs> it, was, it was, I don't know how to put it in diplomatic terms. <laughs> <laughs> I will use the example that came up uh, at some point there was an input i feel particularly sad today i don't know what to do with my life and the app was dismissive it was ah, okay maybe you want to drink a cup of tea i mean uh, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it completely <laughs> missed the point completely mm-hmm. and it, it was uh, this was still a good uh, a good part of the app so I don't know, we have our brain and in general our mind, which we don't know if it's our brain or not, by the way, which is a a wondrous instrument. And of course, technology is trying to to help us to use it because, I mean, it's a technique, it's something that we practice. But it takes time. It takes time and I'm completely in alignment with your project not to try to be at the mercy of technology only. I mean, you want uh, to influence also these designers, uh, these people who have the brilliant uh, capacity of structuring applications that uh, absolutely can make our life easier. But on the other hand, uh, yeah, sometimes we need to be <laughs> we need to be careful. So I'm really happy that you came up with this great idea because. I think we need to go deep. As you were saying, as a philosopher, I can rationally notice that, yeah, there's a lack here, that the adaptation to learning is not fast enough, that I'm subjected to similar patterns over and over, that younger generations tend to, yeah, develop attachment for these fixed patterns, which is kind of worrisome, as you were noticing. But I do think that psychoanalytic thinking can go deeper. 
I mean, uh, that uh, is really, really useful to create an audience, as you were saying, uh, to do consultations, to to break yeah, the realm of uh, what we think we know mm-hmm. <laughs> and go deeper mm-hmm. and see what we discover. And I think that psychoanalysis, more than uh, other disciplines, uh, can make this leap. Mm-hmm. It's the best candidate. For example, now there's this uh, hot topic of AI being self-aware, self-conscious, and so on. Do you think that AI might have an unconscious? I mean, can, can <laughs> we get there? Is there a need for psychoanalysis to be in dialogue with technoethics or with the AI to understand what's the horizon in the future? I almost want to pose that question back to you. I think maybe philosophy will have more to add here, but I think I think this is a frightening question. In the beginning, I dismissed all kinds of ideas of apps and AI being at all in competition with psychoanalysis or being able to usurp psychoanalysis or, you know, kind of these these drone wars, you know, futuristic kinds of things. I just thought, okay, we'll never get there. And as time has gone gone on and in dialogue with younger people who are really involved in tech, I'm starting to realize that many of them really want this and really think that it is the wave of the future. And when I ask them to what end, they say, oh, then I'll never have to work. And I think I get very frightened when I hear that, okay, so there's some future where we'll have stormtrooper-like AI bots walking around (laughs) or whatever. Everything will be infused with a chip. My basic premise is anything that can be built can be broken. And anything that can be built can also be hacked for nefarious aim. Not to say that everyone's nefarious, but it only takes one. And so for me, I'm very worried about that level of development of AI. When we get to the question of sentience or consciousness and then unconscious, do they have an unconscious? I start to get very afraid too, because then do they have rights? And there's all these ethical questions. And it becomes very complicated. I think there's something about the unconscious that is linked to the body And to sensation, which is not the same as having sensors, which is what AI has. And so I think in my mind, I've basically decided emotionality, embodiment, sensing, feeling, you know, these kinds of things are still in the realm of the human. And that sensors or what looks like emotions, what looks like those kinds of things is not the same. And so I think it's sort of a, a facsimile of consciousness. And anything that AI might sell to us as, oh, it has a, an unconscious, it has dreams, we've implanted, you know, a family structure and a history and associations and so on. I think that's very different because it's not rooted in the body and it's not rooted in sensation in the way that we know it. But it still warrants ethical consideration and certainly we have to take it up. And I think psychoanalysis could have some roles in thinking about some of these kinds of questions, how we, how humans interact with these kinds of AI. But I don't think there's a, there's a need to put an AI robot on my couch, for example, and analyze it so far. <laughs> we would just reprogram it, right? I mean, if that's, the, if that's the question, if it's having some sort of anxieties or something that we, we would consider a mental health dilemma, I think we would just reprogram it. Oh my God, can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) It's something, right? Right. Well, working side by side with the technologists to reprogram the robot in a way that certain psychological problems can be avoided. (laughs) Which is also frightening. Maybe we actually need psychological problems in order to struggle, in order to develop meaning, which I go back to, like, what is the AI's meaning? I, I don't even know. So this gets very kind of, you know, out there pretty quickly. 
<laughs> right. Uh, yeah, because it might develop fixations. I don't know. <laughs> there might be. And are those what we call bugs? I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Could be. I know that uh, this is my last question. Uh, I mean, I know that uh, you are uh, working on several areas. Uh, yeah. Do you want to share what you are currently working on? I mean, I know that you are on several projects, uh, research, uh, writing. Uh, you are uh, yeah creating this podcast. Is there any project in your pot that you would like to share with us? Sure, sure. The podcast is taking some time right now. I have the first three episodes and they'll launch in the next couple of weeks, which is exciting. There's this one, there's one about negative capability and one about desire, lack and jouissance, which is coming up. And there will be others that follow each month. I wrote a proposal to the International Psychoanalytic Association. It's a very small grant proposal for some research among people who during COVID had both psychoanalysis in person and online for some large chunk of time and sort of comparing those experiences. We haven't ever had a social context event like COVID where everyone is experiencing some teleanalysis. So we get to look at what happens and compare that to other instances where people are entirely in person or entirely online. We get to look at that because now even the most resistant analysts are doing this work. So it's no longer, no longer can we say, oh, it's just because they like it. You know, it's just because the analysts like the online format and that's why it's successful. Now we have some real data to look at, oh, the, even the ones who don't care for it and are reticent are doing it and let's see how successful it is. So I'm hoping that that research project will take off. All the good luck uh, and lots of energy to bring these projects to success. And I hope people will be able to read and listen to what you're creating. I think it would be a positive contribution to our society. Oh, thank you. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Nicole Zapian. Thank you so much for uh, what you're sharing with us today. And thank you for joining us on the show, Susie. It's always a delight to collaborate with you. And thank you all for listening to Technology and the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Fernando Castrillon about the Lacanian notions of desire, lack, and jouissance, and how these ideas relate to our use of and design of consumer technology. For subsequent episodes, please join us at Technology and the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.